Our text for this afternoon's worship service is God's words as it is summarized in Lord's Day 46. Let us read that together. Why has God commanded us to address God as our Father? To awaken in us at the very beginning of our prayer that childlike reverence and trust toward God, which should be basic to our prayer. God has become our Father through Christ and will much less deny us what we ask of him in faith than our fathers would refuse us earthly things. Why is there added in heaven? These words teach us not to think of God's heavenly majesty in an earthly manner, but to expect from his almighty power all things we need for body and soul. The sermon I'm about to read for you this afternoon is prepared by the hand of Reverend Rodney Vermeulen of the Canadian Reformed Church at Addercliffe, Ontario. In response to this sermon, let us sing from Psalm 43, the stanzas 3, 4, and 5. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, without a doubt, if there is one area of our Christian walk that we struggle with, it is our life of prayer before our Father in heaven. We know we have to pray. It's commanded, question and answer 118 of the previous Lord's Day. We know it is the primary means by which we are to express our thanks to God. Also the previous Lord's Day, question and answer 116. We know that God will give his grace and his Holy Spirit only to those who constantly and with heartfelt longing ask him for these gifts. Also question and answer 116. And we do our best to pray. Many of us will make a point of praying regularly. But somehow, for more than one of us, we're not sure about this whole prayer thing. For starters, we know that prayer is talking with God. It is communing with him. But it doesn't always feel that way, does it? I think some of us know what I am talking about. Praying can be like arriving at someone's door, pressing the doorbell, and discovering that there is no one home to open the door to you. So you go back a little later, press the doorbell again. Again, no answer. You go back again, still nothing. After a while, you stop going. And then, does it even make sense to lay my needs before God in prayer in any way? After all, he knows exactly what I need before I ask him. Jesus said, to him, said so himself in Matthew 6, verse 8. And if I struggle with that, that raises another thing we grapple with. Is there any sense in asking others to pray for me or with me for someone else? Because if God hears one person praying or a hundred people praying, it's not going to make any difference, is it? He knows anyway. Which raises another struggle for us. How persistent can we be in prayer? May I pray again and again and again and again? Does it make any sense to? Because frankly, I don't even have to ask once. My Father in heaven knows what I need before I ask him once. Lots of questions, lots of struggles with prayer. We could keep multiplying the questions, and I expect that most of us have found ourselves in more than one of those questions. 
This afternoon, brothers and sisters, I pray that God's Spirit may be present among us as we go into his word to look for his answer to our struggles with prayer. And many of these answers from God's word revolve around who our God is, that he is our Father in heaven. And that's what makes it so hugely significant that Jesus instructs us to begin our prayer with that address. If we, by grace, understand something of that, then many of our prayer questions will also be answered. I bring to you God's word as summarized here in Lord's Day 46 using this theme. The God of heavenly majesty is our Father because of Christ. That awesome reality teaches us much about the privilege of praying and the effectiveness of praying. The awesome reality of having God as our Father teaches us much about the privilege of praying. Before beginning to answer that question, we have to dig a bit deeper into why it is that these sorts of questions come up. Why is it that so many of us struggle with prayer? Because, let's face it, many of us experience prayer as more of a command than a privilege. And it's a command, don't get me wrong. We do have to pray. It ought to be that way. But it is, at the same time, a wonderful privilege that we can't get enough of. For some of us, though, it's more of a chore than a delight, more of a matter of making sure I do it rather than wanting to be busy in prayer. We need to ask ourselves this afternoon, why is that? In preparing for this sermon, I was reading a book I had recently purchased about the Lord's Prayer. It's called A Transforming Vision, and it's written by William Edgar. Based on what I was reading in his book, this line came to mind, and listen carefully. Our prayer life is less than it should be because, in our estimation, God is less than he actually is. Let me repeat that once more. Our prayer life is less than it should be because, in our estimation, God is less than he actually is. Or to say it a little differently, our view and understanding of who our God is has a direct impact on our prayer life. Stating it positively, recognizing who God is and understanding who we have as our Father has a hugely positive impact on our life of prayer with him. But, stating it negatively, if our prayer life is poor, chances are that our view of God is deficient, or at least to some degree. And I wonder if that is part of our struggle. Apparently, Francis Schaeffer, who is referenced in that book I mentioned a moment ago, apparently he once asked his wife this question. What if we woke up one morning to discover that God had removed from our Bibles all references to prayer and the working of the Holy Spirit? What real difference would, that, would it make in our lives? They decided that it would probably make precious little difference. It's worth pondering for a moment, isn't it? To ask the Schaefer question a little differently. To what degree is God functionally absent from our lives? I know it's a pretty blunt and confronting question, but see, we know God is there. We acknowledge that he is there, that he is real. But when it comes to living our daily lives, how much do we really think God is involved? More pointedly, how does the reality of God's involvement really affect the way we live our lives in the day-to-day of our existence? See, if God, in our perception, maybe even just subconsciously, 
is just a God out there and not a God in here, if God in our perception is a God who controls the sun, moon, and stars, but not the God who keeps my cornflakes fresh in its packaging, then we have a very limited view of God. To follow this through, if God in our minds is just the God out there and not the great and awesome God who is also involved in the very minutest details of my life and existence, then why would I pray to him about the things of the here and now, the things of this very earthly life? If his involvement is limited to the big things out there, then why bother praying to him about the little things or even the big things down here? But see, this is precisely why Jesus taught his disciples to begin their prayers with, Our Father. You cannot address God as Father and keep him out there. A father isn't a father if he is not involved in the very details of the life of his children. Matthew 6 here is beautiful. Says Jesus, don't be like the hypocrite. His God is just a God out there. And the only reason he is praying to this God is so that others can be impressed with him. He doesn't concern himself with the possibility that God is involved in the nitty-gritty of his life, because otherwise he would pray, wouldn't pray like that. But, says Jesus in verse 6, when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. Notice what Jesus is saying here. When you pray, go into your room, shut the door. The room is closed. It's a confined space. Pray to your, not God, but, says Jesus, pray to your Father. And then listen. Pray to your Father who is in secret. I've pointed this out before, but let me do so again. What does that mean, pray to your Father who is in secret? More literally, it is, pray to your Father who is in the hidden. You see, when you go into your room to pray, you shut the door and you pray to your Father, your Father who is in the hidden. Meaning, he's there in the room with you, listening as an attentive, loving Father to your prayer. We need to understand in a very real sense who God is. We need to pray for that understanding that he is a great and awesome God of heaven and earth who is at the same time our Father, concerned, interested in, having sovereign control over the minutest details of our existence. He is so as a loving Father. I know this is huge to grasp. King Solomon of the Old Testament grappled with this too. At the dedication of his magnificent temple, this reality of God made him stammer at the wonder of it all. In 1 Kings 8, verse 27, we read, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Well, brothers and sisters, Jesus wants you to know that God, who cannot be contained by the heavens, is there in your room when you are praying. He is there as your father, as your father because Jesus Christ was rejected by his father on the cross. And if we by faith know that, then praying to father is a privilege purchased for us at the cost of the blood of his son, an awesome privilege that we want to be busy with regularly. We want to converse with this father who is so close by so closely involved in our lives. Then I want to tell him how happy I am, how thankful. After all, he brought about the circumstances that gave rise to my joy and my happiness. 
Then I want to tell him how sad I am, even if I don't know why I am sad, because he is my father. I want him to know. I want to ask him to help me. And then I want to ask him to take this pain away. He knows exactly what I am going through, and I know that as my father, he is concerned about that. It touches him as it would an earthly father to see his child suffer. Actually, it touches him much more than that. Then I want to go to him when I feel negative about my faith, because such feelings I know concern him. And I'll ask him, Father, hold on to me. And then I want to stop for a moment when I am feeling frustrated with the kids. I know it concerns him when one of his children is struggling with the sins of frustration. And I want to ask him to help me overcome. Then I want to go to him if I am being bullied because it hurts so much and I just need to tell my father about it. Ask him to give me strength. Ask him to make it stop. What is it that you want to talk to your father about? What is it that you want to ask of him? But here's the thing. Are those prayers effective or are we just wasting our time? And this brings us to our second point. The awesome reality of having God as our Father teaches us much about the effectiveness of praying. Is praying effective? Look with me again at Acts chapter 12. Herod arrested Peter, thinking he was doing the Jews a favor. Verse 2. He delivered him over to not one, not two, not three, but four squads of soldiers to guard him. Verse 4. You have to wonder what he was afraid of. Four squads of soldiers? Then there is the quiet, unobtrusive note in verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Got that? No wonder, Harold. No. No wonder Satan put four squads of soldiers in charge of this one single Christian man. The church was praying. And then comes the story of God's sovereign intervention in rescuing Peter out of prison. And we so focus on that amazing story that we miss the connection. But read it as a whole, the way the Holy Spirit intended it. Verse 5 reads, But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord. You know the rest of the story. And then look to verse 12. When he, the now freed Peter, that is, realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where, where many were gathered together and were praying. You see it, right? It's obvious. Prayer. God's amazing rescue. Prayer. Is prayer effective? Of course it is. But, and this is so much like us, we don't believe it, just like those earnest praying Christians didn't believe it. If it wasn't so funny, if it wasn't so sad, it would be funny. Peter knocks on the door. Rhoda, the servant girl, answers Peter's voice, recognizes Peter's voice, and forgetting Peter, runs and interrupts the prayer meeting. It's Peter, it's Peter at the gate. They stop their praying and say to Rhoda, get a grip on yourself, girl, that's not possible. Peter's in prison. 
Oh, brothers and sisters, that is so like us. See, they, like us, did not fully understand the relationship between the prayers of God's people and his sovereign working in our lives. And as a result, they and we don't expect our prayers to make a difference. Peter's praying friends certainly never pondered the possibility that their prayers might produce a prisonless Peter. So now we have to ask the hard question. What then is the relationship between God's sovereignty and our prayers? Because scripture clearly teaches both of, these, of those truths. First, God is absolutely sovereign and in control of all things. He freed Peter from prison and had already planned to do so. And then secondly, to use James's words, the prayer of a righteous man has great power as it is working. James 5, 16. The prayer of people, the prayer of Peter's praying friends was effective. God freed him from prison. Your and my head are already spinning. It makes no sense. And you are right, it doesn't. It doesn't make sense to us. But that doesn't mean for a moment that it doesn't make sense at all. We have to remember, brothers and sisters, that we are praying to our Father in heaven. And says the Catechism, that teaches us that we must not think of God's heavenly majesty in an earthly manner. It might not make sense to us, but that shouldn't surprise us at all. Our Heavenly Father is all-wise, all-knowing, almighty. We are but his finite creatures. And so, brothers and sisters, it is for us to simply go to God's word and to see what it says about the relationship between our prayers and his sovereignty in our lives. We need to look at this from God's perspective, not ours. And what has God told us in his word? He's graciously told us this. Praying is effective. We already saw that from James chapter 5. And with that in mind, let's go back for a moment to our reading of Matthew 6. Take a look at verses 8 and 9 and following. Verse 7, Jesus tells his listeners not to heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do. Lots of empty phrases isn't going to make a difference at all. And listen to this in verse 8. Do not be like them. For your father who knows what you need before you ask him. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. Stop there. Well, if that's true, we want to ask, if our father is in his heavenly majesty knows what we need, then why do we have to ask? Notice verse 9, though. Jesus doesn't enter that question, entertain that question, because to him it isn't a question. Verse 9, pray like this. Yes, your Father knows. He is sovereign. But pray. Pray like this. Our Father in heaven. It seems to be a contradiction or a dilemma for us. But we aren't talking about, but we are talking about our Heavenly Father here, and it makes perfect sense to Him. And that's good enough for us. He is sovereign and prayer. The two go together perfectly. Perhaps that leaves you disheartened. Because you still want to ask, what is the point then? But here we need to remember who we are. We are created by our Father to have a relationship with Him. He created us for that relationship. He ordained all of history, all the events of our lives too. But He has also ordained that we might have a living, loving relationship with Him 
in which prayer would function as a powerful means for us to speak to him, express our thanks, express our deepest concerns and desires. And he has ordained that he will hear and he will respond and act. Then we don't coldly pray, Lord, please do this and that and the other thing, but your will be done. No, as one author wrote, we wrestle with God in prayer, seeking to align our prayers, what we are praying for with what his will is. Then praying isn't wrestling with God to get him to do what we want. Effective praying is seeking by grace to align ourselves with our Father's will for our lives. Effective prayer, then, is as much about asking God to change our circumstances as it is asking God to change the way we respond to our circumstances. To say it perhaps more biblically, praying is about asking our Father to help us respond to the difficult circumstances of our lives in a way that honors Him, even as we're asking Him to change those same very circumstances for the better. Think by way of example of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. He had a flesh ailment, a thorn in the flesh, he calls it in verse 7. He begged his father in prayer to remove it. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, he writes. God didn't answer that prayer the way Paul was hoping. Instead, verse 9, his father in heaven said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Does that mean that Paul's prayer was ineffective? Not at all. God answered it in his way. Paul prayed, he pleaded with God, and he received a hefty dose of his Heavenly Father's grace so that he was able to boast, I am experiencing Christ's power as I struggle with my physical weakness. Paul's prayer was powerful in its, in its effect. Make no mistake about it. And so we confess that the effectiveness of a prayer is not measured by whether our father answers, Father's answer meets our expectation. Rather, the prayer of the righteous one is effective in that through our prayers and our Heavenly Father's wise response to them, he is sovereignly working out his wonderful purpose in our lives. That means that when our Father answers the way we so desperately desire— that is good, because he is teaching us something more about who he is, even as we thank and praise him. But it also means that when our Father does not answer the way we so desperately want, that also is good, because he is teaching us something more about who he is, even as we learn to increasingly trust him. Let me make that clear from Luke 11. Ask Seek, knock, and it will be given, found, and opened. That's the response of our Savior. Jesus continues, If sinful earthly fathers know how to give good gifts to their children, how much more true is that for our Father in heaven? And I want to point out how Jesus concludes in verse 13. How much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Here is a wonderful, delightful promise. You will be given the Holy Spirit through, those, through whose presence and working you will be drawn closer to your Father in heaven, irrespective 
of what he brings about in your life. And if my father brings that about through my prayer, then my prayer is effective and incredibly powerful. So then, do you keep praying and keep praying about a certain situation or circumstance? May I keep on asking God in prayer for something? Yes, brothers and sisters, yes. Think of Luke 11. That's the lesson in that parable about the persistent friend. Keep on going to your Father in heaven in prayer. Go again and again and again, all the while seeking to understand your Father's will for your life. Your Father wants to hear your deepest desires, and he wants to respond in precisely the way that he knows is best. Think of Elijah, whom James referenced. He was a sinful Joe like the rest of us. He prayed for rain, sent his servant to check, prayed again, sent his servant to check seven times. God knew what was needed. He knew that Elijah was going to pray. And at the same time, Elijah knew by faith that a prayer is powerful and effective. And so he kept right on praying. Got something you are praying for? Your Father in heaven says, be persistent. Keep praying as you seek my will for your life. So, do I ask others to join me in prayer? After all, my Father knows my needs anyway. One person praying or a hundred, what difference does it make? But again, what does Scripture teach? Think of Acts 12 once more. The church didn't designate one person as a prayer person. No, the church was praying. They were gathered together and were praying, says verse 12. Or what about Paul? He often asked those who received his letters to pray for him. Think of the end of the letter to the Romans, chapter 15, verse 30. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Of course, he prayed for himself and his ministry, but he also asked others to join in. He asked others to struggle in prayer with God together with him. Why? Was that just a nice touch? Of course not. By faith, Paul knows that if God is so, has so ordained things that the prayer of one person is effective, then Father in heaven also has also ordained things that the prayer of a hundred persons joined in prayer is also effective as he meets a hundred of his children in their inner rooms, listening to them as their father. May we be encouraged, brothers and sisters, to be a praying people of God. When we pray, we not only address him as our Father in heaven, he is that, our Father in heaven. Pray, pray fervently, pray persistently. Ask others to join in your prayer. And may we experience the powerful effect of prayer. Amen. <laughs>